Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Daniel DeBrock, your host of the Stacked Strength Podcast. And today I'm sitting down with Greg Potter. Uh, this is Greg's second time on the podcast. And today we're going to be talking about something a little bit different, uh, but something that I think is really, really interesting and generally kind of under-discussed uh, in, in powerlifting. And that's the relationship between sleep and nutrition. So first off, Greg, I want to say thanks for, for jumping back on the podcast. It's awesome to have you here. Can you... Um, give a just a bit of a background for yourself for maybe those who aren't familiar with who you are yeah of course and thanks very much for inviting me back daniel i am broadly interested in how different aspects of lifestyle affect how we feel and how we perform and um, i've got a background in sport and exercise science did my undergrad and my master's in that subject and along the way did a fair bit of coaching working with a range of different athletes but at that time, particularly with strength and power athletes. And then I ended up at the University of Leeds where my PhD focused on the relationship between sleep, nutrition and metabolism, which is very germane to today. And since that time, I've been involved in a few different digital health companies. I've co-founded a nutrition company and I've worked with a larger range of people, including ultra endurance athletes and everyday folks too. So hopefully... I have a background that's relevant to what we're going to discuss today. Yeah, well, you're kind of known as the uh, the go-to guy for for sleep, at least in in the circles that I kind of hang out in. Um, so, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to this conversation. So, why don't we just kind of go start off by giving a little bit more of a broad overview of the relationship between sleep and nutrition and potential eating behavior, and then we can just kind of like start uh, going down little rabbit holes from there. Perfect. It's a bi-directional relationship between how we sleep and what we eat. And what I mean by that is that what we eat will affect how we sleep, but also how well we sleep will affect our food choices. And so if we start with the latter, then perhaps the best studied way by which food and by which sleep affects our food intake is what happens when people don't get as much sleep as they need. And there are different ways of looking at this. You could use a cross-sectional study design in which you ask people how long they sleep, you follow them up over time, and you look at changes in their body weight. And those are going to, of course, be influenced by their food intake. And you generally find that people who report short sleep and the cutoffs that are used in different studies vary, but that's often defined as being six hours or less or five hours or less tend to be more likely to go on to develop obesity over time, suggesting that insufficient sleep promotes food intake. But a better way of getting at that question is to do some sort of controlled experiment in which people are either allowed as much time in bed as they need, or they have restricted time in bed. And if you look at all of the different research that's been done on that subject, then it seems to be quite consistently the case that when people have insufficient time in bed and therefore don't get as much sleep as they need, they consume a bit more food, something to the tune of 250 calories each day. They therefore tend to gain a bit of weight. And these types of studies are expensive to do, so they tend to be quite short term. But on average, people gain about 0.34 kilos. Going by the studies that have been done, which are typically several days long, but people don't necessarily burn more calories and because sleep affects so many different aspects of our biology, you also see some accompanying changes too. So for instance, perhaps related to that weight gain, you see a reduction in insulin sensitivity. And so people are now very interested in what are the mechanisms that might mediate this relationship between insufficient sleep and change in food intake. And historically, people have focused on hormones, thinking that perhaps there is a reduction in hormones that promote satiety, such as leptin, in response to insufficient sleep. Or there could be an increase in hormones that promote food intake, such as ghrelin. And it's not clear that it's hormonal changes that underlie that relationship and instead, what seems to be going on is that patterns of activity in the brain change such that 
we're less able to control our impulses around food. So we become more prone to choosing smaller, sooner rewards than delaying gratification in the pursuit of a better physique or better health. And one final thing that I'll add here is that it could be that there are sex differences between men and women in how they respond to insufficient sleep. This hasn't been very well studied to date, but it seems to be the case that women aren't as affected as men in terms of insufficient sleep promoting food intake. They might not be affected at all on average. And instead, for whatever reasons, and we don't really fully understand those, it's men who experience this phenomenon more. So I'll pause there, Daniel, because that was a brief overview of how sleep duration might affect what we eat. But obviously, there are also different dimensions to sleep health that we could go into. And you might want to pick up on some things that I just mentioned. Yeah, there were a lot of things you said that uh, that I definitely want to get into. So one of them is uh, looking at sleep restriction and, and weight gain. So I know a lot of those studies, as you mentioned, are over a shorter time course. And even though the, the weight that they gain is, is relatively small, when you extrapolate that out, that could potentially turn into something a little bit uh, more significant. But I guess one of my questions would be, would you expect that to just kind of be an ongoing thing? Or would you expect that to somewhat reach this like homeostatic level at, at some point and kind of like stabilize? We don't know, of course, but if we assume that energy intake continues to remain above energy expenditure at a relatively stable amount, then you would expect continued weight gain over time. And there are different ways that you can model this Kevin Hall, for instance, has a dynamic prediction model, and you can plug various numbers into that and look at the outputs over time. And just as an example of this, there was recently an interesting study on sleep extension and changes in energy intake and body weight over the course of a couple of weeks in adults with lifestyle-driven insufficient sleep. And what they found was that when these people were told to get more time in bed, and given personalized guidance on how to do so, they did end up sleeping more. And they also ended up reducing their energy intake and their body weight. Whereas the control group that weren't given an intervention actually ate slightly more than they did at baseline gained a small amount of weight. And going by the difference between the two groups, which was quite similar to what I mentioned previously, was slightly more than 250 calories each day. The difference extrapolated out to three years, you would expect to be something like 10 to 12 kilos based on Hall's model. So I think that that might well be the case, but right now it's, it's difficult to tell whether the, the difference between energy intake and energy expenditure would continue to be seen. And one thing that I'll add here is just that I think it's likely the accrual of insufficient sleep over time that's the problem here so there are different ways of getting to a given sleep debt if you completely deprive somebody of sleep for one night and that person is used to sleeping seven hours per night then that's a seven hour sleep debt that they now have alternatively somebody could have seven days on the trot of getting one hour less sleep than they need and they end up with the same sleep debt. We don't right now have a good way of comparing those two different conditions. But my guess is that it's it's that residue that's particularly important in this context. So I don't know if that was helpful, Daniel, but that's just how I think about this at the moment. Yeah, no, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And so why, why do you, or do you have any sort of ideas around why women might not be as affected from like a uh an, an eating standpoint or eating behavior standpoint i don't and i'm frustrated that i don't i'm sure that some evolutionary biologists could come up with some interesting hypotheses as to why that's the case the issue is that we just don't have much data right now comparing men and women in their responses in terms of say electrophysiology in the brain or in terms of hormonal regulation of appetite or in terms of energy expenditure. So 
I think right now <laughs> I'd feel uncomfortable speculating just because there's so little to go by. There's a little bit of work on the subject of circadian disruption and whether there are sex differences in response to that, suggesting that there might be some differences. But when you look at those papers, it's quite hard to reach conclusions as to what the broad categories of differences are. The data are a little bit all over the place at the moment. Okay, so it's it's more that the, the data is like pretty heterogeneous as opposed to they're just not necessary or I guess maybe it's a combination of they're not being enough because I know that uh, the the vast majority of like sports science research is conducted on males and that has been changing over the last yeah. while but um, yeah that, that's kind of interesting I, I I wouldn't have suspected that to be honest I probably no. like if, if you would have asked me prior to hearing this my assumption actually probably would have been the opposite that I would have mm -hmm. assumed that women might be more affected by it um, and I don't know that I have a good reason why outside of maybe just like intuition or personal experience, maybe, but, um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. I'll, I'll add a couple of comments. So one is that you might expect there to be some sex differences based on differences in things like the prevalence of obesity between the sexes, assuming that the prevalence of sleep problems are somewhat similar between the two different sexes, but we know that the prevalence of certain sleep issues does differ between the sexes so if you look at insomnia for instance then it's slightly more common among women if you look at restless leg syndrome which is a sleep related movement disorder or movement related sleep disorder then that's more common in women too and a lot of that is probably driven by the fact that women are more likely to have anemia and insufficient iron in the brain can contribute to restless leg syndrome so it's really hard to tell based on that. But I, I imagine that if you combined various different data sets, then you could come up with some relevant hypotheses. One thing that I'll add here is that what I mentioned focused on sleep duration, but there are also hints suggesting that that difference between the sexes might also carry over to some other forms of poor sleep. So for example, Marie Pierce and Ange has published some work showing that people with quite fragmented sleep in which they wake frequently during the night might be less successful in their weight loss efforts. But again, that might only be true of men rather than women. And so it might not just be insufficient sleep that's relevant to this discussion. It might be other forms of poor sleep too. It could be low quality sleep. Maybe there's a difference between the sexes and how they respond to circadian disruption too, etc. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So <clears throat> one thing I get questions about a lot actually is differences in sleep requirements uh, from individual to individual, you know, because mm -hmm. I hear a lot of people saying, you know, you only need five hours sleep, you only need six hours sleep. My personal opinion on that is that is nonsense. If you're an athlete, <laughs> I don't think that you can really perform very well. Um, if you have such insufficient sleep, if you're really training hard, um, mm -hmm. every high level athlete I've ever coached or known or worked with needs like a ton of sleep just because of the output that they have. That mm -hmm. being said, um, I do know some people who function on like very little sleep, but I, I, I wonder how much of that is like, <clears throat> how much of that is like a genetic thing and how much of that is them just sort of ignoring the actual potential decrements that are existing cognitively and physically yeah i think there are a few things at play here one is that if you're used to not getting as much sleep as you need then i don't think that you necessarily adapt to that biologically there isn't really evidence suggesting that that's the case there's just one example of this which isn't focusing on sleep duration but it's focusing on another form of sleep issues is if you take shift workers and you put them through circadian disruption protocols in which you change their light dark cycles and times of day at which they eat and so on then they respond similarly negatively to that disruption compared to people who don't work shifts and if there was some sort of adaptation to that regular circadian disruption that the shift workers experience then you expect that to not be the case so with that said, my guess is that if people are used to insufficient sleep, they might develop some coping strategies. They might understand more about how 
not getting enough sleep affects them. Maybe they realize that they struggle to maintain their focus and they come up with some ways around that. Or maybe they realize that they're particularly prone to reaching for the donuts instead of the fruit bowl. And so they're more meticulous about making sure that there aren't any donuts in close proximity to them. Now, with that said, to turn to the other aspect of your question, Daniel, there are quite big differences between people and how much sleep they need. So if you look at the genetics of sleep duration, then at the short sleep end of the spectrum, the shorter sleep is identified. We know something about the genetics of these people too. There have been mutations identified in certain genes, such as some genes that encode some of the beta adrenoreceptors and some genes that encode certain circadian clock genes then the shorter sleep as identified needs slightly less than six hours per night on average. So if somebody is claiming they only need four hours, then going by the fact that these very rare individuals with these gene mutations need substantially more than that, there's a good probability that these people need more than four hours of sleep. Yeah, I mean, that's a 50% increase in <laughs> So one, one question I do have about that, though, is... Are, like the, these people who have these very unique and rare, um, you know, genetic predispositions, are they measured within the context of athletic performance or is it just like kind of some of the cognitive tests, reflex tests, things like that, 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 uh, that they were looking at? No, the, the, people normally just look at their sleep and their sleep alone. And in some instances, they, they might look at how they respond to things like sleep deprivation. So if you look at one of these genotypes, it's a mutation in a gene named DEC2, then those people basically wake up very early. They have a slightly advanced circadian rhythm. And if you deprive them of sleep, then their sleep doesn't rebound the following night the way that most people's does. So if I deprived you of sleep tonight, Daniel, then, and I wouldn't do that to you, don't worry, then tomorrow you would get more sleep. And if you looked at the architecture of your sleep, then you would probably get more of certain stages of sleep specifically. So in particular, you tend to see an increase in what's known as slow wave activity, which is the high amplitude, slow brain waves that characterize the deeper stage of sleep. But if you look at these people with this mutation in DEC2, their sleep doesn't rebound the way that yours would, Daniel. So we know something about the sleep of these people, but people haven't really been interested in their physical performance necessarily or their cardiometabolic traits, for instance. Mm -hmm. So with respect to athletes, and I was going to get to this, if you put the genotypes aside, we know much more about short duration sleep phenotypes than we do about the long duration ones and short duration sleep genotypes than we do about the long duration ones. But if we put the genetics to the side, and I'll add that there are genetically long sleepers too who need substantially more than nine hours per night, then there are other factors that will influence how much sleep you need. So on average, 18, 64-year-old adults are recommended to get seven to nine hours of sleep per night. Some might need slightly less, some might need slightly more. However, within an individual, the amount that you need varies on an ongoing basis. And exercise is a perfect case in point because if you take a sedentary person and you put them through a structured exercise training program that is appropriately difficult for them, then they'll tend to fall asleep slightly faster, sleep slightly longer, and also sleep a bit more efficiently, meaning that they're asleep for a greater proportion of time that they're in bed each night. And so there are various different things that take place during exercise with respect to energy expenditure, the different hormones that your body synthesizes, such as growth hormone and so on, that will affect your sleep duration. And for the most part, exercise causes people to need more sleep. What can happen at the extreme, however, is that if you take somebody, put them through overreaching or even frank overtraining, then sometimes you see that their sleep starts to deteriorate. And poor sleep is one of the most common biomarkers of overtraining, which isn't really something that we understand that well, as I'm sure you know too well, Daniel, but 
interestingly as an aside, overtraining maps very closely to relative energy deficiency. And I, I don't think that's coincidental. I think the mismatch between energy expenditure and training loads and nutrition is a key component of what's going on there. And that could have some relevance to sleep too. So just <laughs> coming back to what you were saying, in general, athletes will need more sleep than the rest of us. And there have been some very interesting studies of sleep extension in athletes showing that if you take athletes who probably don't get as much sleep as they need, and this is very common in certain sports. If you look at rowing, for example, then it's common for rowers to be on the water in the early morning. With strength athletes, they normally have more control over when they're training. And so they have a greater opportunity to get more sleep. But when you take athletes and you give the opportunity to sleep more, they tend to experience a range of different health and performance benefits. Strength athletes themselves haven't been studied very well. Strength and power athletes have been studied a little bit, but most of the research is focused on things like team sport athletes and certain more skill-based athletes too. So the other thing that I'll just mention here is that how much sleep you need probably also varies according to the time of year. Unless you live at the equator, the photo period, so the amount of time that the sun is up each day varies and often substantially over the course of the year, the further you get away from the equator. And it's clear that our biological clocks do track that. And a really nice example of this was a camping study done by Ken Wright. He actually did two studies on the subject and he had people go camping in the Rocky Mountains for several days. And in one of those studies, they did that during the summer and the other, they did that during the winter. And they looked at their melatonin rhythms in response to those two different interventions. And they found that when people camped in the winter, their brain synthesized melatonin for more than four hours longer than they did during the summer. And their sleep changed in lockstep with that melatonin difference too, such that they slept a lot longer in the winter than they did during the summer. So basically, if you're an athlete, you're probably going to need more sleep than the rest of us. You're going to find that you need more sleep at different times of the year. And then finally, the amount of sleep that you need is going to vary dependent on some other factors too. One of which, and this sounds really esoteric, is the position of the moon. It's clear that people sleep a little bit less at full moon than they do at other times in the lunar cycle. Another one is whether you're fighting some sort of infection. If you give somebody a, a low viral load, then they will probably need a bit more sleep than they otherwise would because the immune response is promoting sleep, which creates this hormonal constellation that helps you fight infections. So I'll, I'll pause there, but it's a long way of saying that you probably need more sleep than you're getting. And the amount of sleep that you need does change over time. And if you can get more sleep, then there's a good chance that you're going to improve how you eat and you're going to improve your performance in the gym too. That's actually really interesting because until you made um, a comment about uh, overtraining, I had honestly forgotten about, because I, I, I'd read a paper or maybe two papers on that um, some point last year, and they were talking about something similar. They were saying, is this actually a sign of overtraining or is this actually just insufficient um, energy to, to fuel that amount of, of uh, expenditure activity? Right. And so, so that was like a totally interest, um, a really interesting, just sort of like sidebar that I had totally forgotten about. Um, so with, with regards to sleep and eating, um, I know a lot of people have, have kind of like talked about, uh, sleep restriction or sleep curtailment and how they see like an increase in, in caloric expenditure. Um, but that's mostly just because the individuals are up for longer. And so just burning more calories because they're standing up, walking around, doing whatever. Um, but I, I wanted to know, uh, well, first, actually, I kind of wanted to like clarify that point because mm -hmm. usually like um, people end up overeating to kind of compensate for, for like just feeling like crap and having no energy. So mm -hmm. I just kind of wanted to clarify that because I get those questions every now and then I'm not sure if you do, but um, yeah. Uh, but then, so beyond that, yeah. But then beyond that, I wanted to know about 
um, eating in proximity to, to sleep, because mm-hmm. uh, personally, I know that if I eat too close to, to sleep, especially if it's like higher protein, my sleep is absolute trash. I it, like it's garbage. Mm. Some people they'll have a big meal and they just like, it's like after Thanksgiving dinner, you know, you have this big meal and then you just get really tired and you pass out and they, they say they feel great. Right. So I just wanted to know a little bit about um, eating in proximity to your actual sleep time and whether or not that affects the sleep quality, uh, the different types of, of, of like rest that you're getting and also even sleep latency potentially. Yeah. I'm actually just going to briefly go back to your previous question, just to tie up a couple of loose ends, which are relevant to the question that you then asked. So, one of those is your energy availability, of course, clearly matters. And that particular study that looked at relative energy deficient sport, relative energy deficiency in sport and overtraining that I was thinking of was just a review article that, that looked at how closely the symptoms of Red S map to the symptoms of overtraining, finding that there's a huge amount of overlap between them. But that brings up the broader subject of how energy availability influences sleep and how that interacts with your body composition too. And so just to give you a couple of extreme examples, if you look at people who have anorexia, who are in a state of chronic low energy balance, so they're consuming very few calories in response to that, their metabolisms have adjusted, but they're often still in energy deficits, then they have less sleep than most of us. Sleep's quite fragmented too. If you refeed those people such that they return to a healthy body mass index, then they end up sleeping more. So in that particular case, that positive energy balance has a positive effect on sleep. If, however, you look at an obese person, let's say that the person has a body mass index of 35 and that's far from all fat-free mass, then if that person continues to gain weight over time, there's a good chance their sleep will continue to get worse. And that's in part because that weight gain is going to dispose them to developing things like obstructive sleep apnea, which is this sleep disorder in which the upper airway intermittently collapses during sleep, leading to sleep fragmentation, intermittent hypoxemia, and an array of downstream cardiometabolic and neurocognitive consequences, all of which are not good. So if you take that type of very obese person and you put that person in an energy deficit and they start losing weight, then sure enough, you see their sleep improve. They perhaps start getting a bit more sleep. Their sleep efficiency gets better too. And as an extreme example of this, you can take somebody who's morbidly obese, who has obstructive sleep apnea. You can put them through bariatric surgery. And there's a relatively good chance that eventually their sleep apnea will go into remission in response to the weight that they lose following the bariatric surgery. Coming now to your second question, the relevance of that is that if you think about the person who's very lean at the start, then, and this this is speculation, my guess is that in that case, having a relatively large meal late in the day, given that their body is used to that state of relatively low energy availability for a sustained period, might be good for their sleep. However, for most people who are in energy balance, who are at a healthy body weight, or if anything, who are slightly overweight, having a smaller, earlier final meal is likely to be a good thing. And that's what much of the research on that subject has focused on. And you can look at acute interventions. There have been a couple of these. One of them, for example, just compared having a relatively large dinner to having a relatively smaller dinner, but controlling for calorie intake and macronutrients and so on over the course of the day, finding that the small dinner condition led to greater overnight parasympathetic nervous system activity. And that tends to support sleep health because if you have insufficient activity in that branch of the autonomic nervous system, or if you have excessive sympathetic activity, then both of those can lead to increased arousals from sleep, for example. More recently, there's been a study that looked at the effects of having a meal five hours before bed to having the same meal one hour before bed, finding that sure enough, the the postprandial responses to the meal, so if you look at blood sugar and so on, shifted in lockstep with the change in the timing of the final meal. But interestingly, 
when they had the meal one hour before bed, the blood sugar responses were more accentuated than they were when the meal was five hours before bed. That's probably in part because of a circadian rhythm and insulin sensitivity, which is driven by a variety of factors. Your clocks in your skeletal muscles, the clock in your pancreas, clocks in your adipose tissue and so on. But there were some other changes too, one of which was that overnight cortisol levels were higher in the one hour before sleep condition. So going by both of those studies, and this research is preliminary, it seems that that smaller and or earlier meal is likely to support sleep health. The other way of looking at this is looking at longer term studies that have people finish eating relatively early in the day or at a normal time for most people. And a common way of looking at this in recent times is to use so-called early time-restricted eating. And time-restricted eating is a concept I'm sure most people listening to this will be familiar with, but the idea is to restrict your intake of all calorie-containing items to a period of 12 hours or less each 24-hour cycle. That's the way that I define it at least. And early time restricted eating often has people eat between something like 7 a.m. and 3 p.m. The studies that have been done on this so far have tended to exclude extreme chronotypes of people who are real morning larks or real night owls, and instead to focus on people with relatively regular, normal sleep timing. And going by those studies, while people might experience an array of health benefits in response to those types of early time restricted eating interventions. The sleep doesn't seem to change that much. However, just going back to what I was saying before, you can imagine a situation in which if you take somebody who's a bit overweight and whose sleep is suffering as a result of that, and they use early time restricted eating as a result, they end up eating a bit less, losing a bit of weight and so on. And my guess is that you are going to see improvements in their sleep over time. It's just that some of those studies have probably been underpowered to date to detect those differences. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that's a really interesting, I guess, distinction between like body composition, BMI, just, I guess, overall body weight. Um, and yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. So when an individual is, is, you know, experiencing any sort of like sleep deprivation or how, what, what, what is kind of like the initial amount of sleep restriction that actually starts resulting in some of these negative uh, side effects in terms of, you know, either um, cognition, uh, increased perceived level of effort for like, let's say decision-making or any of that stuff and including uh, performance decrements as well. Um, and then I know you did mention that there's also seems to be a bit of a difference between like acute and, and chronic. Um, yeah. So can, can you kind of touch on that? Mm -hmm. So with respect to acute versus chronic, one thing that's relevant here is somebody's recent sleep history. As an example of this, if you have people bank in inverted commas sleep for a period of time before sleep deprivation for a night, then that sleep banking in the run-up to the sleep deprivation will protect against some of the negative effects of the sleep deprivation. And that's been clearly shown for certain cognitive outcomes, such as vigilance. So the likelihood of you experiencing some lapses in attention during a boring task that requires you to stay focused. And related to that, we know a lot more about the time course of how sleep loss affects cognitive performance than we do about how it affects physical performance. So on that subject, one of the really nice demonstrations of this was a paper that was published by Hans van Dongen in 2001. And they took people through some different sleep loss protocols. So in one instance, the people were completely deprived of sleep. In another, they had eight hours in bed. In another, they had six hours in bed. In another, they had four hours in bed. And apart from further sleep deprivation, these different sleep restriction interventions were followed for extended periods. And what they found was that even the longest time in bed condition did experience some decrements in their 
cognitive function. They looked at psychomotor, psychomotor vigilance tests, which is what I was alluding to earlier. They also looked at some measures of things like the ability to add and subtract numbers. But based on their findings, it seemed that those relatively healthy people who were participating in the study needed at least eight hours in bed to not experience decrements over time. And so it seems that even relatively modest sleep loss will contribute to impaired performance over time. But one of the interesting things they found was that there was clearly a discrepancy between how well the people feel they performed and how well they actually objectively performed. Because when they asked people to rate their performance without them knowing their actual performance, they found that initially when they weren't getting enough sleep, they rated their performance as getting worse over time. But that started to plateau after a period of several days, such that they thought that their performance was more or less stable at a slightly lower level than baseline. And in reality, their performance just get, kept getting worse. One thing that this brings up, and I should have mentioned this earlier, is people respond to sleep disruption and sleep loss in particular very differently to one another. Some people are quite resilient against some of its negative effects. And again, much of this work has focused on cognition, but some of it has focused on eating behavior too. There was some great research a few years ago now showing that if you take people and you put them through a sleep loss protocol and you measure their food intake and changes in their body weight over time, then several months later, you have them come back into the lab and repeat the protocol. How they respond to the sleep loss is remarkably stable over time. However, people respond very differently. Some people will eat a lot more and gain a lot of body weight in a very short period, whereas other people actually eat slightly less and lose a bit of weight. But obviously, on average, people will eat more. So there seems to be trait-like differences between people and how they respond to insufficient sleep. And I just want to <laughs> quickly go back to something that I didn't get to in your previous question, Daniel, which related to energy expenditure, because I know that you asked about that too. And in short, when people lose sleep, they don't necessarily seem to burn more calories, which you might expect as a, as a result of the extended wakefulness and the additional energy that's required to maintain that over time. And it's therefore that discrepancy between the fact that people aren't necessarily burning more calories, but they are eating more when they don't get enough sleep that contributes to their weight gain over time. There might be some modest differences. And I think one variable that could modify responses is the timing of the sleep loss. There's tentative evidence that it could be that people who have enforced early morning wake-ups so in the sleep loss protocol, they go to bed at a normal time, but they have to wake several hours earlier than normal. Could be in that instance, they don't really burn more or less energy. Whereas if they wake up at a normal time, but they have to go to bed substantially later, then they do burn a bit more energy. And I think that makes sense when you think about your experience of those two different scenarios, because for you to stay awake in the evening without just plying yourself with stimulants, <laughs> being physically active supports that. Getting up, standing, walking around and so on is going to stop you from falling asleep. Whereas as soon as you sit down or lie down, you're going to be prone to nodding off. Your experience in the early morning though is a little bit different. And if you have to wake very early, then you probably just feel a bit sluggish and slow to get going but you might not find yourself quite so prone to falling back asleep. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, so when it, when it comes to uh, eating behavior then, because I know you talked uh, about a lot of the inter-individual differences in how people respond. Most people on average seem to increase their caloric intake, uh, but there is still some difference to kind of the, the extremes. So, what are some of the things that drive the increased intake of, of uh, energy? And then also, does there appear to be a, a particular type? Like, are people a little bit more drawn to rich carbohydrate foods or high fat foods or maybe a combination? 
And, and how does palatability affect that as well? So with respect to the final part of your question, I, I think a lot of the increase in food intake that you see is driven by greater so-called hedonic eating, which is not eating to fulfill your basic physiological functions. It's eating because you find food desirable. And related to that, what you tend to see is an increase in things such as snacking behavior, particularly at certain times of day. So if you enforce sleep loss by having people go to bed later, whether or not they wake up earlier, then you tend to see an increase in snacking behavior during the late night. And related to that, one of the things which is completely intuitive is that the shorter your sleep, the more you tend to spread out your food intake over the course of the 24 hour day. And that's, that sounds so obvious as to be unimportant, but it probably is important. And it's important in part because if you're consuming lots of food late in the day during your so-called biological nighttime, which is the time of day at which your body's clock is promoting sleep and fasting and is optimized for fasting, then you're more likely to shuttle the nutrients that you consume into bodily tissues where you don't really want them. You're less likely to deposit those nutrients as fat-free mass and more likely to end up putting them towards fat mass, for instance. So I think that's probably very important. Mm -hmm. And so with, with regards to uh, even sometimes the, the decisions, um, let's say an individual's dieting and generally speaking, they're, they're reasonably good when it comes to dietary adherence, but they get, um, you know, they have an extended period of sleep restriction because it's really busy at work, their kids, you know, whatever. Um, <clears throat> what are some of the things that, that, that you see actually happen that drive some of these behaviors? Cause you, you did mention, um, just like the hedonic pursuit of food in general, but then mm -hmm. even cause I've noticed personally that like when I'm tired or hungry, my decision-making process is much, much worse. Like mm. I'm much more prone to make bad decisions, which is usually something that I always try and remind myself of so that when I am tired or hungry, I'm like, no, don't be an idiot. You know why this is happening. So on yeah. and so forth. But, but um, what do you see with regards to, to those kind of changes that occur? In general, if somebody is not getting enough sleep, they're going to be more impulsive. And you see that with respect to different types of risk-taking activities, whether that's gambling or how prone somebody is to substance abuse. And I think that's relevant to food intake too. One study, which is quirky and entertaining, but relevant too, was done by Christian Benedict a few years ago. And he had people either after sufficient sleep or insufficient sleep go into a mock supermarket with 50 US dollars and buy whatever food they wanted. And they found that when people hadn't had enough sleep, they bought more food, both in terms of the mass of the food, its weight, and in terms of its caloric content. So clearly, there are things going on in our bodies that are pushing us in the direction of very energy dense, palatable foods. It's not just that we eat more calories from the same foods that we did previously. It seems that because of changes in those reward systems in our brains, we're going in the direction of those energy dense, delicious foods, which probably aren't so good for us in general. And there are a few different things that, I believe might make the responses to insufficient sleep in the real world even greater than what we see in studies. One of them is that if you look at sleep restriction protocols that are used in scientific research, so as an example of this, in some studies of the effects of insufficient sleep on food intake, somebody might have five and a half hours in bed each night for several nights. But the times of day at which they go to bed are perfectly consistent from one day to the next. Mm. In the real world, that's not the case. And because the study enforces that sleep period each day, you're likely to see improvements in some aspects of sleep, 
sleep regularity is improved. And we know that that per se is important to behavior and biology. Sleep quality is likely better too in some ways, because when you have such a compressed period in which to sleep each day, you build up lots of pressure to sleep during the day. And that helps you fall asleep quickly and stay asleep. So your sleep efficiency during that short sleep period is going to be quite good. Whereas in the real world, if you imagine a similar context in which you're not getting enough sleep and the total amount of sleep that you get over several days is the same, you probably find that your sleep schedule is moving all over the place. And so it might be that you're experiencing more disruption to your body's clock and going by some work by people such as Frank Shear, it seems that the combination of insufficient sleep and circadian disruption is probably worse in terms of your food intake and your cardiometabolic health than insufficient sleep alone. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Um, so in, in terms of cardiometabolic health and then just, I guess, the impacts on your metabolism kind of as, as a whole, what are some of the things that you see with sleep curtailment? A few things have been very consistently demonstrated. So one is a reduction in insulin sensitivity. And there are probably a few different things that drive that. One of them might be changes in the autonomic nervous system, so greater production of stress hormones in particular that can mobilize free fatty acids from adipose tissue. And those themselves can contribute to higher blood sugar levels and insulin insensitivity. But you also find that those greater levels of stress hormones will mobilize glucose from different stores. So they contribute to gluconeogenesis in the liver and so on too, and, and possibly also proteolysis. One thing that we haven't touched on, Daniel, is that if you haven't had enough sleep, then while the data on this aren't perfectly consistent, it seems that skeletal muscle protein synthesis is probably a bit lower in response to sleep loss. Muscle protein breakdown might not be lower. I don't think that the findings are very clear as yet. And one thing that we do see is an increase in cortisol. And cortisol is generally proteolytic in skeletal muscle. You also see reductions in certain anabolic factors too. There is preclinical research showing that there are reductions in things such as IGF-1. But in humans, one thing that has been relatively well demonstrated, particularly in slightly older adults, but also in young adults, is a reduction in testosterone, which addresses both sides of the muscle protein balance equation, both muscle protein breakdown and muscle protein synthesis too. So I think that change in, in protein balance could be meaningful too, because so far we focused on body weight, but these changes in your eating behavior and your endocrine system and so on are going to strongly affect the actual composition of your body weight over time too. And there's been some really nice research demonstrating that. And then in terms of other changes in your hormones and so on, I touched on leptin and ghrelin earlier. There might be some small changes in those. It's not very clear. Perhaps the ratio between the two might differ. And that could itself be important. You might see some changes to the circadian rhythms of certain hormones. In general, I think that when people don't get enough sleep, you're going to see a bit of disruption to your body's clock too, in part because the sleep loss tends to come with changes in the light-dark cycle. And those changes in the light-dark cycle are going to influence the time of your master clock in your brain and possibly some of the peripheral clocks elsewhere in your body too. And... I think those are probably the key ones that have been demonstrated well, but I'll just add that there are other hormones that are affected too. These include things such as the endocannabinoids. You might see an increase in some of those, particularly in the evening, perhaps an increase in a slightly shifted rhythm, which could promote evening food intake too. And there might be some modest changes in things such as certain thyroid hormones, which over time could contribute to change in body composition too. So just, just to touch on insulin again, can you explain why um, a decrease in insulin sensitivity could be relevant to, to uh, people? Yeah, yeah, of course. And obviously when you talk about 
insulin sensitivity, you're speaking about it in relatively global terms, but you want certain tissues in your body to be insulin sensitive, insulin sensitive. And one of those tissues, of course, is your skeletal muscle, because the more insulin sensitive that is, the better able you, you will be to drive nutrients into that skeletal muscle, be those branch chain amino acids into muscle proteins, or be that carbohydrate to be deposited as muscle glycogen. So you need to consider that type of tissue specificity. But the reason that insulin sensitivity is important is that it contributes to the majority of chronic non-communicable diseases and their development over time. And so while people tend to focus on the fact that insulin resistance disposes people to prediabetes and diabetes, it also disposes people to things such as Alzheimer's disease. And the reason is that the worse your insulin sensitivity is, the greater your blood sugar excursions are likely to be following meals. And if you look at the, the integral of those over time, so if you look at the area under your blood sugar curve over a long period, and if you look at the magnitude of the swings also, then both of those things can predict your risk of diseases such as Alzheimer's disease because you have glucose sticking to a bunch of different macromolecules that it shouldn't stick to and, and a variety of other changes too. So ultimately that change in insulin sensitivity is important because it's going to influence your health span and, and the quality of your life over time and, and your risk of experiencing a variety of different morbid conditions. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah, no, thanks for clarifying that. Um, so I guess one last question that I do have actually is uh, CBD relative to sleep quality. Uh, I've heard a lot of things about it. I feel like most of the research on CBD in general for a lot of the claims that are made, it's pretty weak evidence, but I haven't looked into CBD relative to sleep so much. So I, I'm not really sure, but I'm always kind of skeptical when you know, one thing is kind of claimed to do everything like a cure-all or whatever, um, which, which it seems like CBD is being promoted like that. It's supposed to reduce pain, improve sleep, do this, do that, the other. Um, so have you seen anything regarding CBD in, in terms of improving um, sleep quality? I, I, from what I've known, it doesn't appear to impact sleep latency, but sleep quality, uh, the type of sleep that you're getting potentially could be positively impacted, but have, have you seen anything about that? Yeah, the people have looked at a few of the different cannabinoids and their effects on sleep. The research on the subject was stalled for years because of legislation. And so I think we're going to see a flurry of research into these substances in years to come, catching up for lost time. But based on the research done to date, I'm not particularly enamored by CBD as a sleep aid. And there are a few reasons for that. One is just the regulation of it and its purity and your ability to get a good source of CBD knowing that it contains what it claims to. But just to make a few comments about cannabinoids in sleep, I think one of the problems is that people who have sleep difficulties often reach for cannabis. And the issue is that cannabis can be habit forming so while CBD isn't psychoactive, if people find that it does affect their sleep, then you might experience some tolerance to it over time. So you might therefore need to increase the dose of the substance. And then if you withdraw it, whether cold turkey or you taper yourself off it, then you'll likely experience some withdrawal effects. And it's easy for people to end up in a vicious cycle in which they're medicating CBD to cope with pain issues or sleep problems and subjectively they feel that it's beneficial but then when they stop taking it all of a sudden their sleep troubles are worse than they ever were previously but just to touch on some of the research on cbd specifically i think some people think that it could have some therapeutic potential for certain sleep problems insomnia rem sleep behavior disorder which is quite a severe sleep disorder in which people act out their dreams because the part of the brain that should paralyze skeletal muscles during rapid eye movement sleep, which is the stage of sleep in which you have your most vivid and bizarre dreams, 
doesn't fulfill its role. And as a result, you end up acting out your dreams. And then possibly some other problems to one of which is just being very sleepy during the daytime or excessive daytime sleepiness. And one of the interesting things about CBD is that it could be, and I'm not convinced this is the case because this is based on a small study done quite a long time ago that wasn't particularly well controlled. It could be that dose is really important and that low dose CBD could actually have a slightly stimulatory effect whereas a higher dose could have some hypnotic effects promoting sleep. But we don't really know that very well at the moment. And to be honest, with respect to cannabinoids, I'm, I'm a bit more interested in some alternative substances that are found in the cannabis plant. So one of these, which you might have come across, Daniel, is PEA, palmitoyl ethanolamide. And... I don't think that it's a, it's a fantastic supplement, but there's a micronized form of it now that's available. And there have been a few small studies suggesting that that could be helpful for certain types of pain. And obviously pain can contribute to various different sleep problems. And long-term use hasn't really been studied yet, but I do find that substance quite interesting relative to the others. And then quite recently, people in Australia looked at a sublingual cannabis extract. It's called ZTL 101 and whether it could help people with chronic insomnia. And the results were quite striking. They found quite substantial improvements in the sleep of these people. And they also didn't really find much evidence of severe adverse effects, but the people had much less severe insomnia as a result of taking it. They fell asleep faster. They slept more than an hour longer and they had better subjective sleep quality too. And this is a, a patented extract. And I think the people who make the product were in some ways involved in the study. So I think we need to watch this space, but I'm not writing off cannabinoids for their potential to help people with sleep problems. But right now, the existing ones, THC and CBD and some of the others, I'm not particularly impressed by. Right. No, that makes sense. So um, we're, we're kind of coming up on that hour mark. And I just wanted to uh, ask if, if maybe there's anything that we didn't touch on or anything that maybe you want to leave the listeners with before you know. Cool. Yeah, we, <laughs> it's, it's a really big subject. So there's, there's a lot that we didn't touch on, but I'll, I'll mention a few things. So one is that if you habitually don't get enough sleep, then if you can do things to extend your time in bed, assuming your sleep quality remains similar to how it was previously, which tends to be the case in those contexts, then you might find that you eat slightly better as a result. And there have been studies showing that when people undergo sleep extension like that, they have fewer cravings for sweet and salty foods. They consume less free sugar and returning to the Ezra Tassari paper that I mentioned earlier, over time that could lead to lower food intake and ultimately a, a lower body weight. So matching your sleep opportunity to your actual sleep need or capacity is really important. And the corollary of that is that if you have insomnia and you spend lots of time in bed awake, then counterintuitively you might find if you spend less time in bed and you match your time in bed to how much sleep you actually get, you actually end up getting more sleep, even though you're spending so much less time in bed and the quality of your sleep is much better too. And as a result, that could have some positive effects on your metabolic health. And, and there's some research showing that to be the case. Other aspects of your sleep matter. So we've, we've touched on the fact that sleep timing is important too, sleep quality and so on. One subject that is probably relevant to a few people tuning into this is that if you're very large, then there's a good chance that you might have obstructive sleep apnea. And if you do, then getting treatment for that could be hugely transformative for how you feel and for your health too. People often say things like, I feel like I've had a brain transplant after starting CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure, which is often used as a treatment for obstructive sleep apnea. 
it's just a continuous stream of air that maintains the upper airway position and thereby helps people breathe during the sleep and minimizes the apneas and hypopneas that characterize obstructive sleep apnea. And as a result, people might find that they make better food choices, but perhaps more importantly, they'll likely find that their blood pressure improves and their insulin sensitivity improves and so on too. I think another one that we didn't touch on is that certain foods themselves do affect your sleep. And just to touch on a few of these, perhaps the best demonstrated are rice and tart cherries. There have been a few studies looking at the effects of having high glycemic index white rice at the final meal of the day, showing that in people who are relatively healthy, when they consume a bolus of that type of rice, they tend to sleep slightly better. They probably fall asleep slightly faster, sleep longer. The sleep architecture might change a little bit. If anything, they might find they get a bit more rapid eye movement sleep as a result of that rice intake. For people with poor blood sugar control, I wouldn't recommend that. But if you're a hard-charging athlete, then I think that's a helpful strategy that you can put to use. And with respect to tart cherries, those contain phytomelatonin or plant-based melatonin, although there are probably other things in the cherries that could affect sleep too. And there have been a few studies showing that when you have people consume 30 mils of a product named tart, named Cherry Active, which is a tart cherry juice concentrate, when you have them consume 30 mils twice a day, they sleep better, especially if they have sleep problems. And that product could also help with athletic performance too. It seems to speed recovery from damaging exercise. So people have their DOMS alleviated sooner as a result of taking it. But also if you look at the rate at which torque production or power production by different muscle groups returns or vertical jump height returns to the normal after damaging exercise, all of those return to baseline faster with tart cherry juice supplementation. So while it's expensive, I think it definitely has its place for strength athletes and for power athletes too. And with respect to your diet in general, I think that the typical things that people harp on about the other foundations of a healthy diet do support sleep health too. So consuming adequate fiber seems to have some small effects on slow wave sleep, although I think we need much more research on that subject. Having sufficient protein intake is going to be important to your sleep quality too. If anything, high fat diets probably slightly promote more slow wave sleep and high carb diets promote a bit more rapid eye movement sleep. But certainly the quality of those different macronutrients matters too. And you're much better off going for sources of carbohydrate that most of us would consider healthy. So think sweet potatoes, that type of thing, than other ones such as sugar-laden foods and so on. And then finally, with respect to supplementation, I mentioned tart cherries. A couple of others that I think are helpful for a lot of people, particularly people in your world, Daniel, are ashwagandha. It's interesting, hasn't been that well studied yet, but all the research so far, and there has been a meta-analysis relatively recently, suggests that it might be helpful for sleep, particularly in people who have insomnia. And there are a few different types of ashwagandha that you could take. The best studied is called KSM66, uh, a dose of 600 milligrams per day. It's a herb that's been used for thousands of years in some parts of the world, such as India. It helps people better cope with stress. And it has some other effects that make it particularly interesting to this population, such as it seems to consistently boost testosterone in men probably to the tune of something like 15% when taken over time. And there have been two studies to my knowledge. Yeah. It's one of, it's one of two plant-based supplements that have been shown to consistently do that. And there've been two studies to my knowledge showing that it also speeds the rate at which people gain muscle mass and strength in response to resistance training. And if you look at those studies then the magnitude of those effects is actually quite modest. It's, it's, it's when I say modest, <laughs> it's the wrong word. It's not bad. It's not creatine, but it's also probably better than a lot of other muscle building supplements that people buy on a regular basis. 
we need more research on that. But I think there's a lot of promise in those supplements. And then the other forms that have been studied a bit include Shodan. That hasn't been studied in the context of resistance training, but it does seem to help people with sleep. And then Sensoril is the other product that's been used for resistance training purposes. And that's typically taken at a dose of 500 milligrams per day. And then the final one that I mentioned, because it has a very good safety profile and it helps people with stress-related sleep problems, which are very pervasive nowadays, is L-theanine, which is just an amino acid that's found in tea and some other foods too, but it's the most abundant amino acid in tea. It's got fantastic safety profile and the dose that's often taken is 200 to 400 milligrams per day, either as one or two doses. And it reduces people's responses to stresses, both their physiological responses and their psychological ones. And it helps people fall asleep slightly faster, possibly sleep slightly longer too. And I just think that given the fact that it's relatively inexpensive and accessible too, it's a, it's a really good option for a lot of people. So hopefully that covers some of the other things that we didn't discuss, but as you might be able to tell listening to this, it's a, it's a really interesting, not particularly well-explored subject yet, and there are lots of different rabbit holes that we could go down. Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting for, for me in particular because I do have quite a bit of issues with sleep. And so um, kind of going through a lot of this stuff has, has actually made a really huge impact in, I mean, not just my training performance, but like I think my quality of life, which <laughs> ended up impacting my training performance, my adherence and a lot of that stuff. But it's, it's funny because like there are some of these things, like some of the basics of people who just kind of like slough off, but it really does make a huge difference. Um, not even from a performance or body composition standpoint, but just from like an actual quality of life standpoint, mm-hmm. um, which, which is, which is pretty huge. So one thing that I do want to direct you guys to, um, is the previous episode that, uh, uh Greg and I recorded, um, that's episode number 13. And the reason why we didn't talk about certain, like, tactics around sleep hygiene and things like that is because Greg did a fantastic job of covering that in the first episode. So I'll refer you guys back to that. If you want more specifics around how to improve sleep quality in addition to uh, this. So definitely check that out. It's episode number 13. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for, for jumping on. Where can people find you? You can find me at gregpotterphd.com. That's my website. And there you'll find a few different resources, including a free ebook that I wrote that you can download, which is just about nutrition principles that you can live by regardless of your diet preferences. So whether you're on a vegan diet or a keto diet or a carnivore diet, I'm also on social media at Greg Potter PhD. I'm probably most active on Instagram, but I'm on Twitter and I'm actually on TikTok now too, which I've got very mixed feelings about. I think I have four followers. So I'm, I'm proud of that. That's probably what I'm most proud of in my life so far, actually. And feel free to, to reach out to me via any of those platforms. Be happy to try and help. Awesome, man. So all that stuff is going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely go check him out. He puts out lots and lots of great content. Check out his website. Get the, uh, the ebook. Greg, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's, it's always a pleasure. I always learn a ton every time, uh, every time we chat, every time I read anything that you put out. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Daniel.